0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is former Air Force Intelligence Officer Brian J. Mora. In his recent book, The Able Archers, He talks specifically about the year 1983 and how we came to the brink of a nuclear confrontation with the Soviet union. And it is a history that most of us don't know that much about. So now without further ado, Brian Mora. Brian, how are you? Hey, I'm, I'm great. How are you doing? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Well, thank you very much. I really
1: appreciate it. Uh, I think we have a mutual friend in Dan Gelston.
0: Absolutely. We sure do. We sure do. He's fantastic. We are uh, neighbors for a time. And as you know, they, uh, they moved recently, but uh, what a fantastic guy.
1: Yeah, no, he's a great friend. And he's been very, very kind to me and, uh, and getting me in touch with you, amongst other things. So I really appreciate your time.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have the, I see the books in the background there behind you as, uh, as well, but, uh, here it is the yes, able archers sir. and, uh, this is amazing. Like I didn't know a lot of the things that you talk about in this book too. And these were my formative years. So I was still relatively young, but I was interested yeah. in all these things. Uh, and I remember all these things. You know, I remember uh, Star Wars and how the how the what the press did with that. I remember uh, stealth technology. Yeah. I remember a Korean Airlines flight uh, 007. I remember all these events, and then all the terrorist events, obviously throughout that that time frame as well. Um, but you were uh, you were a little bit ahead of me there. You were already. In service, um, and before we get to yeah. this, before we get to the novel and the the events that brought us closer to uh, to nuclear war than even the the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, I wanted to go back and get a little background on on you and uh, and how you got sure. to that point and got to that point in the early '80s that's now fictionalized in this story here. Yeah.
1: Well, again, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, as I get started, I see you've got your books, <laughs> of course, in the background. I just finished reading In the Blood, which uh, I think is terrific. I I, I think it may be your best book. I, uh, thank I you so much. I think it's really, it's really great. And I love the way that you wove in uh, technology into this story, especially quantum computing, which is something that I know a little bit about actually.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. So I knew nothing about it. Kind of like with the the last book, with the devil's hand, I didn't really know anything about uh, bioweapons or bioweapons research uh, other than what I'd seen in movies and read in a couple other novels. I didn't have a touch point with that during my time in the military. Um, And then same thing with this, with quantum computing. That's something that I've, I've heard about. I kind of, generally understand artificial intelligence, I understand is a little bit just by what people talk about is with Facebook and Google and that sort of a thing, but I didn't really have any touch, well, I didn't at all have a touch point with it in, during my time in the military, um, yeah. but didn't really have an idea of what artificial intelligence, quantum computing, hypersonic missiles, passive targeting, all these things, how they work together in the national security space. Um, so I had to go deep down the rabbit hole on, uh, on that for this last novel.
1: Well, you did a nice job and I I, I can't say too much because I I still have security clearances (laughs) Got it. (laughs) and uh, and I I was uh, cleared into some things uh, a few years ago related to that. But I I will say that you did a very fine job. Oh,
0: (laughs) thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that. Thank you so much. Uh, Well, how did you get to this point? Did you uh, how did you did when you were growing up, would you always have an interest in these sorts of things or what was your what was your path? Yeah,
1: I, I was interested in, as a teenager, I was interested in either the foreign service or intelligence. And I, I grew up in uh, rural Virginia and southern Virginia, not anywhere near Langley. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't know anybody or anything really connected with that world. Well, of wait a second.
0: Room. Wait a second. It sounds kind of like a character that uh, in the novel
1: yes yes well kevin katani and i share some uh, some resemblances <laughs> and uh, kevin is loosely based on on my experience and some areas not so loosely and others mm-hmm. a little bit more so but um yeah so i i did have this desire to see the world and do some things beyond the confines of the valley i grew up in and uh, um and so i i but i really didn't know how to go about doing it you know i i didn't know how to get into such a what to me seemed an exotic business Mm. uh growing up where i did um i i went to college in much like kevin katani in williamsburg virginia and uh and i was exposed to more there and that's where um i did actually as a senior in college i took um the both foreign service exam and the exam to get into uh or at least get screened by cia and i I studied russian language there and i i studied um i was a history major but i really focused on russian history and east asian history um so i was i most of william and mary is where i went to college is known for american history and early american history especially but uh being the rebel that I was, I decided that Russian and East Asian history seemed more interesting to me. So that's what I did. Um, yeah, so I, uh, the short story, I guess, on, on how I ended up in the Air Force and in Air Force intelligence is that uh, I, I did take the Foreign Service exam. I, I got fairly far into that process, but I did not get offered a position. Uh, CIA I had more success with uh but due to budget cuts they were delaying people entering um the the career trainee course at the farm <clears throat> at that time this was right after the church hearings and uh the church committee hearings in the senate and and the clandestine service especially took a lot of budget hits mm. and, uh, it was during the carter administration so uh and, and the the uh, uh, the folks that were running cia at that time were not too enamored of the clandestine service either so in any event um i needed to go to work and i couldn't wait for a school date and i i was going to have to wait at least a year and so i asked uh one of the kindly cia officers at the recruit station what do you think i ought to do and he said well You know, go into the military, uh, become a military intelligence officer in one of the services, serve for, you know, four or five, six years, come back to us and it won't be a problem. So I thought that sounded like a plan.
0: Very similar to your character here.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's what (laughs) I did. That's what I did. And uh, uh, I went into Air Force Intelligence and and had some of the same experiences that uh, Kevin Catani has. Uh, in this book uh, I also blended experiences that others I knew had into mm-hmm. his character um, for dramatic purposes and also so I wouldn't have you know too many characters running around
0: yes no that's important that's yeah. important did uh, when you were studying uh, Russian history and, and uh, East Asian history did you do a, a semester abroad did you study language uh, that sort of a thing when you were in college
1: well, I did study Russian language. Um, I did study Japanese a little bit. I think I only had a semester of Japanese language. Um, I did go to the Soviet Union uh, as a student. I didn't do a full semester abroad, but I did go to Leningrad mm. for a, a period of time, and um, which helped my Russian language. Skill Im- immensely, um, and also spent a little bit of time in Moscow at that time. That was in the winter of 1975-76. So, to give you some time frame of what was going on in the world then, and that was actually when détente was beginning to unravel a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in those middle the middle years of the 1970s. Things were. We, we detente really had a short shelf life i guess and it was beginning to things were beginning to get colder again at that time in terms of relations between the soviet union and the u.s
0: and do you think that all come to a head in 1983 ish
1: time frame yeah, uh, right yes and that's uh you know it it was ironic for me that um in my real life and in katani's uh, made up life that Uh, A lot of the things I did as a student and did um, uh, in terms of personal interest sort of prepared me for the experiences that Katani had. I mean, even the fact that I was stationed in Tokyo initially Mm -hmm. was sort of a serendipitous event because I did have a fairly strong East Asian background. And I I had... uh, An immediate affinity with the Japanese um, intelligence services that we were working with. Mm -hmm. And I was able to speak some Japanese, and I did study Japanese more while I was there, and that, of course, helped. Um, So, yes, there, I think all all those things, you know, I'm sure it's true in your life, too, all the things that you do seem to create a mosaic, and Mm -hmm. sometimes you're put in the right spot at the right time.
0: That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. That. yeah. And what were your takeaways from as a student going to, uh, uh, to Moscow and Leningrad? Um, I, I also went before my time in the military as well, uh, to, to Moscow. Um, and, uh, I remember the, the architecture really stands out to me all these years later and I was there in the winter. So it's cold and everyone's bundled. Yeah. And uh, it's dark like it seems like I think I was there during a time when it was actually dark like there were clouds overhead the whole time Um, so what were your takeaways from uh, From going to Moscow or to to uh, the Soviet Union as a student in the 70s
1: Well, I was there at the same time of year you were and so darkness was darkness at noon was (laughs) Was a typical condition. It was uh, very gloomy Um, but I was enraptured by, especially Leningrad, Uh, St. Petersburg Mm -hmm. is a beautiful city, and the architecture there is breathtaking. Um, The sense of history there is palpable every step you take around the city. Uh, And uh, Moscow is very, very different. Moscow is, especially perhaps at that time, because uh, even in those days, in the mid-70s, Leningrad tended to be a bit more cosmopolitan. It was mm-hmm. still westward leaning. Um, it's a port city. So you had the influence of foreign sailors, uh, just merchant marine you know, guys mm-hmm. coming in and they and it had a flourishing black market because of that, mm-hmm. which um, Moscow, not so much. Uh, Moscow seemed to me to be almost overwhelmingly oppressive yeah. in the sense I, I got there. And I guess the last thing I'd say, Jack, about the impressions from that time there was uh, uh, with with the Russian students that I met and became acquainted with, their sense of uh, almost being in a prison. Mm-hmm. They, they knew that there was much more to the world than they were seeing and that they were able to experience. And there was a sense of, I want... It's not quite despair, but there was a sense of real melancholy Mm -hmm. amongst these kids that there's a big wide world out there and I'm never going to see it because I'm I'm behind the Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it, uh, it it was it had a psychological impact, I think, on a lot of those the kids, at least that I became acquainted with.
0: Oh, I bet. I mean, you can say I can even to this day, all those years ago, I I can I can sense it. I can still feel that oppression. And, uh, and and this is much later, obviously, when things have opened up. Uh, at this point, this is the early '90s, um, so it's still a little. There's there's th- certain things going on. Um, uh, there, there was even a, a coup, an attempted coup, uh, in '93. Um, so right. there was a lot. There's a lot going on, but you could sense, you could feel the oppression, and certainly the darkness and the architecture don't help uh, you know, <laughs> alleviate any of that oppression. It's just whatever that whatever that reason, you can just feel it inside. It's an interesting feeling to, yeah. to have walking through those streets yeah it is
1: it it really it gets into your, your pores i mean you just it, you feel it in every molecule of your body almost and imagine living there your entire life mm. and these young people as i said felt caged yeah like they were birds yearning to be free yeah <laughs> right
0: yeah you oh, know interesting and now, uh, were, were you uh i mean you were very young at the time um do you have any memories of the cuban missile crisis like are you how old are you at Cuban missile crisis i mean you're Really I, I nice. was yeah I was five do you remember your parents old. like you ever because I have memories yeah. from when I'm five years old six years old seven yes. years old do you have I, memories of that I I do I remember
1: the uh, we would have civil defense drills um, when I was in kindergarten and first grade um, and probably even later than that I guess where they would send us home from school and we were supposed to shelter in place and we did the duck and cover Maneuver. Yeah,
0: <laughs> our desks under the wooden desk. Yes, yeah.
1: yes. And uh, what I I remember, I think the the one memory I have specifically, maybe two memories of the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, itself. My parents were extremely anxious. I, I remember that, and I remember them watching. Uh, television watching the television news and every night and which is not something they necessarily always did Mm. and they were they were really tuned in to what was what was going on as i think most americans were the other memory i have is I, i was as a kid i was kind of fascinated by aviation even at a very young age and Um, I remember walking home from school and it must have been during the Cuban missile crisis and seeing fighter jets overhead. And they were probably like F-102s. They were interceptors. Mm. And, and I remember them breaking the sound barrier over overhead, which was something they did in those days, which we have noise ordinances now, (laughs) but, um, And I I remember that. and I I remember that evening asking my father about it. And he said, oh, well, they're they're practicing intercepting Soviet bombers because of this crisis that we're we're in. Wow. So those are the memories I have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible how form, you know, during those formative years like that, how impressionable we are. Um, one of, one of my earliest memories is of, uh, Iranian hostage crisis and, uh, my parents turning on Walter Cronkite every night And our school, going to his church to, to pray. And, uh, so yeah. I really remember that. I remember the pictures. I remember the black and white photos that really stayed with me. They make it into my writing. Um, I think about it quite, quite often. Um, so the, then, but same, same type of age, same time frame. I was about six, uh, at that, at that time. Um, so I remember, I remember it. Uh, and yeah. uh, i remember thinking why you know why uh, we're america why is this happening to us uh you know by the time your touch point is kind of world war ii as a kid you know six years old that's the kind of movies you're watching like hey didn't we aren't we the most powerful right. country in the world why are we letting this happen to our citizens um but i remember it distinctly i think it really was uh, uh you know during those formative times really made an impact really did um, but, uh, but you have those memories from back then. And do you think that, in, that, uh, uh, influenced you as far as your choice of, uh, uh, of course of study in college and then the path you take in the future?
1: I, th- it probably did. I, I unconsciously, I, I, think, as I said before, you have this mosaic of experiences that come together to form the person that you are. And I, I think that probably had some influence on me. Um, I, I was... I really, as I said at the outset, I was, I think, as a teenager looking for some way out, some way to see the world and do things that were important and were uh, and and the intelligence business really fascinated me from an early age. And I, I read spy novels and that sort of thing when I was a teenager.
0: Oh, nice. And what were you reading back then?
1: Well, I know I read Le Carre, and um, I probably read some of Ian Fleming stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, so things like that, I'm sure, and some other authors I don't recollect off the top of my head, but I'm sure I was reading.
0: Yeah, right, right. The The Power of Popular Fiction, uh, Popular Culture. Uh, So you go into the Air Force, and right away, you know you're going in on an intelligence track, and... Do you go to OCS and then go uh, on some of the, on a path that then branches at some point into different uh, facets of the intelligence community in the Air Force?
1: Yeah, I went to, in the Air Force, we call it Officer's Training School, or OTS. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, same thing, same notion. And that's how I got commissioned. Um, yeah, and I did know I was going into the intel career field uh, pretty much from the outset. Not quite, there was a little uh kerfuffle where they wanted me to go to pilot training <laughs> and uh my eyes and i was willing to but my eyes weren't and i wasn't quite 2020 and uh that's kind of another story but yeah so i intel was what i wanted to do and it is what i got to do uh, I, I went through the general kind of the, the i i like to refer to it as sort of a liberal arts degree in intelligence was the school that um they sent us to in denver At that time, it's no longer there. But, um, and that was a very good grounding. And then I went to some other schools beyond that um, with three letter agencies. Uh, So I
0: I was kind of like your character?
1: Kind of like the character. And I I was uh, one thing I don't mention is also I went through an NSA school. And uh, so I had some, I kind of knew enough in every facet of intelligence to be dangerous, you know, as a young lieutenant and i didn't really know anything but i had a lot of I, I they did a really quite good job i think of rounding us out and and giving us broad exposure to every you know human through SIGINT through and and when uh, we were in that school in denver we got our top secret sei clearances and so we were exposed to quite a bit and uh yeah, so by the time I got to Japan for my first assignment, I was, you know, reasonably well prepared. I think they did a pretty good job.
0: No, it sounds like it. And with the threat essentially being communism, Soviet Union, do you remember how much you guys, were if at all, you talked about uh, uh, proxy groups, proxy wars, terrorism, that sort of thing? Or was most of the focus on that early 80s uh, communist Soviet threat? Well, in in the far east which is
1: where i was uh we were we were certainly our primary focus was the soviet union uh secondary was north korea and third was china and probably fourth was what was going on in southeast asia which i allude to in the book and
0: uh, that part was fascinating the, by the way i was like oh geez i've, I've heard of this but i need to do a little more research into into this and
1: actually in, in the second book uh i get into that a little bit more uh retrospectively as mm-hmm. kevin katani is looking back at at uh that period so yeah so there was we were we had a fairly you know, wide-ranging focus but the soviet problem as we called it in those days was number one uh but where we were the threat of war with north korea was was a close second uh in as much as the north koreans were very provocative and always uh well uh, frequently i should say not always but frequently um doing provocative things in south korea that we had to we had to respond to with our South Korean allies. But it, it was, yeah, So, but the Soviet problem would have been number one at that time.
0: Interesting, all these years later, uh, Russia, China, North Korea, of all those three, it seems like North Korea is the one that has stayed uh, as, as close to, uh, it was back then, uh, you know, as it is today, uh, there has been obviously differences now with Russia and breakup of the Soviet Union, of course, and, and China's rise and all these sorts of things. When you, when you look at that, when you look at those three countries through the lens of all these years and being there in the, yeah. in the early eighties, what, uh, I guess what, what surprises you the most or what, uh, or what doesn't surprise you the most about those, uh, those changes?
1: Well, I think the thing that surprises me and perhaps most of us the most is the rise of china and uh, china was at that time was rather weak militarily although they were uh, not uh, they were not afraid to exercise their military power um they they did in vietnam they invaded vietnam in 1979 um in retaliation for the Vietnamese going into Cambodia and getting mostly rid of the Khmer Rouge. So China was was militarily active and they were militarily active on the islands around Taiwan, even during that time frame. Uh, But obviously the military power that they possess, that Beijing possesses today is infinitely greater than it was in the late seventies or the early eighties. So that, I, I think that's, that might surprise if, if one were to, if we could, if you and I could get in the time machine and go back to 1980, um,
0: which I and, would do in a heartbeat, by the way, for anyone listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Maybe 85, I I'd uh, go to 85, my wife and I have 80. this conversation all the time. If I can go to one year, <laughs> I think I'm going back to 85, right in the middle. I dig. that's just such a great time. I, I have such fond memories. I'm even smiling about it right now. If I could get in that hot tub time machine, 85 is where I go, I think.
1: <laughs> well, okay, let's make it 1985. So we, <laughs> Jack and I go back to 1985. and With the knowledge that we have of the world today, I think, I think China's rise would probably be the most surprising thing to, uh, to our younger selves in 1985. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, North Korea. The problem has, uh, I think, you said it well a minute ago. It's persisted remarkably for that period of time. It's gotten, if anything, worse uh, as they've developed nuclear weapons, of course, and the, the means to deliver them. Um, and and Russia is is Russia, and Russia is uh, obviously in the news uh, rightly today. And although it's not. <clears throat> it's not the superpower it was at that time in the, in the 1980s, it's still a very potentially dangerous adversary and it still has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. People f- forget that, you know, different, different types. Um, I forget the exact numbers right now, but, uh, but, uh, they have a lot of those, the tactical quote unquote, tactical nuclear weapons, yes. a lot of different delivery mechanisms, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's when you think about that, it's uh, it certainly is sobering. Uh, I would say, um, but uh, one thing I thought that was really interesting as well is when you talk about China invading Vietnam, you talk about the lessons learned from that, and what did they do to then modernize their military to adapt to what uh, what happened during that invasion and that in that war that was essentially a stalemate. I think. Um, well, uh, so so that that's the lessons learned. I'm always thinking about what lessons can we learn? How can we apply that going forward as wisdom? And uh, China seems to do that a lot better than we do because they're not thinking in these four-year, eight-year election cycles. They're yeah. thinking decades, if not centuries. Uh, and what can we take from this that happened in 1979? And then how can we use these lessons to make us a more formidable force 20 years from now, 30 years from now? And we're seeing that play out we're not very good at that in this country it seems anyway
1: no we're we're not and the chinese are good at that as you just said and really that that 1979 war was a watershed moment for the leadership in beijing they it revealed just how antiquated their armed forces particularly the army um was and uh and they Deng Xiaoping was the leader of China at that time, and he took significant steps to address that. And one of one of which was his new economic policies to grow the economy to enable them to modernize the military. Uh, and uh, so, for them, it was all it was an interconnected strategic move uh, after that war that was not just about. You know beefing up military force it was it was creating an, an, a modern economy that could support a modern military force
0: right oh man so when we thought when well back to the book real quick, why did you decide to write this as uh as fiction rather than uh as an, as non as a nonfiction account? Because you blend it in a way that uh, you know, I've seen people do that before, historical fiction, of course. Um, but uh but this event this stood out differently because of when you use first person uh from uh from multiple perspectives, which was fascinating, I thought. But uh, why decide to tell this story as uh as fiction?
1: I did it on a dare actually. Uh, <laughs> I
0: wonder how many great things in this world have been accomplished because of a dare. I'm guessing more than one. I, I was uh, having, my wife
1: and I were having dinner with friends of ours and, uh, and the husband in that couple uh, challenged me to write a novel because I was talking about the fact that I had been interested in writing and I'd been encouraged by people over the years to write about this period in history uh, and, uh, this was in 2018 and earlier in 2018, two nonfiction books were published about the 1983 Soviet war scare. And so I explained to my friend that I don't think the world really needs a third nonfiction book at this mm. point. So I probably won't do anything. And he said, well, why don't you write a novel? It'll probably suck, but maybe <laughs> it won't. <laughs> and, uh, so I took that as a, he sort of dared me to, to do it, and I I took him up on it. And the first the first person narration, <clears throat> and I, I've got, as you said, I've got two different first person narrators. One is uh, Kevin Katani, the American, and the other is Ivan Levchenko, the Russian um, GRU officer. And initially, I wasn't going to write first-person narration, but as I started to, uh, as I started to write, I I was seeking a way really, I think, Jack, to, to put the reader in the room Mm -hmm. with these guys. And it just seemed to me that first-person narration was, the best way for me to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, a more skillful writer probably could have come up with something else, but <laughs> that's what I decided to do. And it seems, it seemed to work.
0: Yeah, I know it works, it works great. And uh, people have heard us mention this 1983, this time frame, a couple of times now. Um, and uh, what were these events and what led up to these events in Able Archer that brought us um, so close to the uh, the brink of war in, in 1983? Um, you know, I didn't didn't even realize how how close we got because um, you hear about it, but if you don't, you know, live through it. And at the time, we didn't hear that much about it. You know, we heard about certain things like, obviously, Beirut barracks bombing, nineteen eighty three. Of course, right. um, you hear about these different of, seminal events that get the headlines. But some of these, these are this is more of a, something that that crept into the headlines later and wasn't even become uh, evident how close we got to nuclear war until way later. Um, and, uh, so, so that's why it's, is another reason that this is so, so fascinating. But what were those events that really brought us to the edge of, of war with the Soviet Union in 1983?
1: Right. And, and I would just, one quick preface comment is that, uh, to your point, Jack, that, um, much of the material related to these events remained very highly classified until just a few years ago. And, I'm often asked, why didn't I know about this by folks? And, and that's, that's the main reason that uh, much of this material was highly classified. But to, to answer your question on the events that led up to um, this this autumn of 1983 in which there were several uh, near nuclear events, uh, I, I think it really begins in, 1980 um one could even go back farther than that but um uh, 1980 is probably the seminal year and a couple of things happened that year one is the election of ronald reagan as as the new president of the united states the other is that uh the soviet kgb and uh the gru which is soviet military intelligence uh were continuously working on something they call the correlation of forces assessment. And in the West, it's often viewed as the, that's a balance of power assessment. And it, it is, but it's more than that. It's, it's more encompassing of everything in society. And what, what they determined, certainly by 1980, was that the correlation of forces of the Soviet bloc versus the West was moving in the west's favor technologically economically socially militarily by almost any measure and they were falling behind and it scared the hell out of them and the uh, election of reagan seemed to them to to be a manifestation of this phenomenon, that the West is on the move, that they're, um, that Reagan was elected in part by promising to modernize and build up the U.S. military and so forth coming in the aftermath of Vietnam. And it really scared them. And it all of these factors prompted the development of this program called Operation Ryan, which was the largest intelligence collection effort the Soviet Union had after World War II, and Ryan stands, it's a Russian acronym that stands roughly for nuclear rocket attack, and it implies a sneak attack, and the the purpose of Ryan was to find indications that the West was planning a first strike nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. And so it began with that premise. The premise was they are planning a first strike. Let's find evidence of it. <laughs> right. So that that was essentially the basis of Ryan. And it was it was a joint um, KGB and GRU effort. Joint may not be exactly accurate, but right. both both agencies, both mm-hmm. the KGB and the GRU, were involved. Um, and so bringing us up to 1983 um there were several very important events that occurred in in the year 1983 that solidified the view in the kremlin that operation ryan was was onto something um so what are those events in 83 uh one is Two, two speeches that Ronald Reagan made in March of 1983 are important. One he made, I think it was on the 8th of March, and these, were, these speeches were nationally televised. It's not like today. It was, you know, three channels. Everybody watches them. And his first speech was his evil empire speech, in which he called the Soviet Union, amongst other things, the focus of evil in the modern world. That he he knew exactly how to push the buttons of the guys in the Kremlin with that speech. And they were extremely upset, to put it mildly, by that speech. Then just a few weeks later, in the same month of March, he reveals in another nationally televised speech the existence of the Strategic Defense Initiative, he being Reagan, and which the press dubs Star Wars. And this, in turn, also made the Soviets very, very paranoid because they interpreted Star Wars as the United States initiative to build a defensive shield around the U.S. and its allies. And why would you need a defensive shield? Well, you'd need one if you're going to execute a first strike, because then you want to protect yourself from from the retaliatory strike. So they saw all of this as adding up to Operation Ryan is real. They're intending to launch a first strike. Um, Another event that happened later in the year, but was planned, had been planned and underway for several years prior to 1983, was the deployment of new nuclear weapon systems to Europe, Uh, notably the Pershing II ballistic missile system to West Germany and the ground-launched cruise missile to the UK. And the Soviets had no defenses for these systems. And again, they viewed them as decapitating first-strike weapon systems. Um, So the general tenor in the Kremlin was one of paranoia and dismay. (laughs) Um, Then uh, on a more tactical level, uh, things that led up to some of the events of the fall of 83. I think the, in, in 1983, the seminal event was a US Navy exercise, Fleet X 83, which saw three carrier battle groups go up into the Sea of Okhotsk, which is a body of water in the North Pacific between the Kamchatka Peninsula, Sakhalin Island with Siberian mainland up to the north and the Kuril Island chain to the south, and the Soviets viewed it as a bastion for their ballistic missile submarines. And no foreign navies were permitted, quote unquote, to go into the Sea of Alkosk. And the US sent three carrier battle groups up there, which really upset the Soviets greatly. There was also US Air Force involvement um, in that exercise too. So um, the, at, the, at the conclusion of that exercise, as two of the carrier battle groups were steaming through the Kuril Island chain, U.S. Navy fighters overflew Soviet territory in the Kurils and uh, spent, according to several different reports, at least 20 minutes conducting mock bomb runs on Soviet military facilities. And the Soviets were unable to react the soviet air force did not get fighters off the ground to react to this blatant intrusion and the fact that they didn't react caused a purge of officers in the soviet far east in their air defense forces and it set up then almost immediately this a heightened alert situation in the Soviet air defense forces in the Far East. This did not extend to Europe or anywhere else. It was just in the Far East that lasted from April of 1983 right up through the Korean Airline shootdown on the 1st of September 1983. And I have Captain Katani, uh, the character in the book, um, essentially predict, that any aircraft, civilian, military, what have you, that violates Soviet airspace will be dealt with either by being forced down or failing that, shooting it down. And that's in fact what happened to KAL007. So I think you one can't really understand what happened to the Korean airliner unless you understand this buildup and this incredibly heightened alert that was unprecedented in the Soviet Far East
0: what was the, uh, the intent of doing those mock bomb runs um, by the US what were you, what response were we trying to elicit were we trying to test and see how how uh, if they could get fighters in the air and then let's say they did then what no kidding um,
1: the the. US
0: Pacific fleet
1: has never acknowledged that this occurred um it didn't at the time and it it never has since uh and but the, the soviet tracking we had that day clearly showed this happening the the tracking we yeah. intercepted and the soviets issued a, a DeMarche, a formal diplomatic complaint about this overflight so um it did happen i i really don't know why it happened i've um, I haven't really taken the time to try to determine that. I'm not sure anyone really has, and I'm not sure anyone would really ever get to the bottom of it. I, the most of the Pacific Fleet would say is if there were an overflight, it was a navigational
0: error. Mm. Which is possible, I guess, unless unless the mock bombing runs are <laughs> you can really say that this is a mock bombing run, not just a plane flying over that, is lost uh, and it is the early 80s so it's not GPS is everywhere um, right it's strange like before it's before, well before Top Gun so it's uh, you know it's not just uh, cowboy stuff going on out there but it's interesting thinking about what response would you be trying to elicit uh, and it doesn't make sense to me just thinking it through right now all the responses yeah. seem not good uh, for us seems like there would be other ways to get information about the Soviet military capability in that area rather than sending some jets overhead to do mock bombing runs. It'd be interesting to talk to those pilots at some point if they're uh, still around. Right, I, I did, uh, I talked to a, a friend of
1: mine uh, who is actually one of the endorsers of the Able Archers um, and he's a retired four-star Admiral who was was a fighter pilot at that time. And he said he he was in that exercise and he said he he didn't know about that, but he said he does remember one morning launching from the carrier and they were, they were approaching the Kuril Island chain. And he said, suddenly I looked down, there were over land and I wasn't expecting that. And we got out of Dodge, but you know, it, I don't know. And, and if it was intentional or unintentional, um, at the end of the day, uh, I, it, at the end of the day, the Soviet reaction was the same. Mm-hmm. And, um, Uh, And it did. It set up this very heightened situation in the Far East that uh, that I do talk about in the book.
0: And uh, for people that don't uh, remember or don't uh, don't know about Korean Airlines 007, can you take us through through that?
1: Yes. So the the Korean airliner um, was a Boeing 747, uh, had 269 passengers and crew on board, and it was shot down. Um, just off the coast of Sakhalin Island by a a Soviet Air Defense Force SU-15, Sukhoi-15 fighter, and everyone was killed on board uh, the 747. Uh, And it happened in the very early morning hours of the 1st of September local time um, of 1983. Uh, What, of course, the $64,000 question is, why was this Korean airliner where it was? Because it was well off course uh, of the uh, the normal transit routes that uh, commercial airliners took across the North Pacific, and uh, we didn't know at the time. And I, I in the book I talk about that night as seen through Captain Kevin Katani's eyes, and it's a night of a lot of confusion and. Uh, we don't know what they're doing. And, um, and that's one example of where my life and Captain Katani's life overlap quite closely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually was the guy on duty that night dealing with all that. And um, so what we've pieced together, we didn't know it at the time, but what we pieced together um, is that the uh, Soviets were confused that night, and we kind of had an inkling of that right away that there had been a U.S. Air Force mission that night off the coast of Kamchatka Island, uh, an RC 135 aircraft, which is a uh, modified set Boeing 707, not, not a 747, but a 707. And the, that f- mission was there that night to collect telemetry on a planned Soviet ICBM launch, mm. which uh, intercontinental ballistic missile test launch, which never occurred that night. So the RC-135 um, did its orbits, it waited for this launch, launch didn't happen, and it turned around and, and went home to its base in the Aleutian Islands. Uh, just coincidentally, the uh, Boeing 747, Korean Airlines 007, flew right through the orbit of the RC-135. And the Soviets um, attempted to intercept the RC-135 that night, they sent fighters up, they never really made an intercept, but they got close, Uh, that wasn't that big a deal. But what was a bigger deal was when this other aircraft came through the orbit, the Soviet Air Defense Forces tried to intercept that aircraft and failed. And that aircraft was Korean Airlines 007, although we didn't know it at the time. The Soviets were confused. They really didn't know what it was. The only plausible explanation to them was it was the RC-135, mm-hmm. that it had some for some reason broken off of its orbit, and now it was going to overfly Petropovlovsk, which is a city and port on The Kamchatka Peninsula that you know well, yes, from your writing, and um, and Petropavlovsk is is today and was then the home base for Soviet ballistic missile submarines. So it's a very tightly held, secretive place, and foreign aircraft are not permitted to overfly Petropavlovsk. Certainly not in 1983. So the um, the Soviets attempted intercept; it failed. Um, The aircraft continued on its course, its erroneous course, and flew over the expanse of the Sea of Alkotsk, that same body of water the U.S. Navy had been in in the springtime of that year, and the Soviets then pick this aircraft up again on their radars as it it approaches Sakhalin Island, and they order fighters up to identify it, uh, try to bring it down by peaceful means, and failing that, um, shoot it down bef- because it's a border violator and, and, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's essentially what happened. Um, we did, The U.S. never got access to the black box, black boxes of KL007, but the Soviet Union did. Mm. The Soviets found the black boxes and they kept them secret for years. And finally, revealed in the 90s that they had them and that they showed there was a navigational error on the part of um, KL007. Um, And there are a couple of different ways that nav error could have occurred, uh, both of which are human error. And um, so they were off course, almost certainly because of that reason, but the Soviet Union at that time, and many in the Kremlin today, still maintain that it was a U.S. intel collection flight, Interesting. and um, and that we had we were we were, you know, blatantly and unsafely using a civilian airliner to conduct this intel collection flight. It's not true, but that that was their party line then. And as I said, I've seen. Um, you know, in the last several years um, writings from Soviet uh, Soviet Russian leaders that indicate they still believe that.
0: And back then, some of that Russian leadership did have uh, very direct KGB ties. Is that right?
1: Yes. And the general secretary of the Communist Party in 1983 was Yuri Andropov, who had been chairman of the KGB for 16 years or so uh, prior to Rising to the top job, yes, and and he was the architect behind Operation Ryan and behind all of this paranoia,
0: right, yeah, so you have people in place that uh, are uh, not necessarily maybe a bit paranoid uh, about such about such things about a nuclear exchange, um especially looking at what the the u s is doing and and, uh, and what, their, what their levels of preparedness are to, to respond to such a, a first strike, especially with SDI uh, out there in the press, whether it was going to be effective or not, it's, it's out there. Um, and you have to assume in those positions, I think, that, hey, if it is effective, then what do we do if the U.S. does launch a first, a first strike? So I see their, their, what their, their position there. But how does uh, Korean Airlines 007 and all these other things, how does this all come to a head and uh, bring us to the, the brink of war?
1: Well, there was also a school of thought in the Kremlin at the time, and Uran Dropoff may have believed it himself, that KL-007 was a provocation to serve as a predicate for a nuclear first strike. Mm. And again, if your whole mental furniture is built around Operation Ryan and that's what the West intends to do, then why not send a Korean airliner in there to provoke a response from the Soviet Union and then use that as a predicate for a nuclear first strike. That that was <laughs> some of the thinking in the Kremlin at the time.
0: Mm.
1: So um, what happened in the immediate aftermath of the Korean airline shoot down, and I, I do talk about this in the book, and I, I don't think this has ever been discussed anywhere else. And I I did get, uh, as you know, I think um, I sent this book and I've sent all my books through, uh, yeah. The, the pre-publication the review process pre-publication i was going to ask you about that <laughs> process yes and uh, and i was a little bit surprised that all of this sailed through and the able archers sailed through with no redactions at all which surprised me in any event back to the story the important thing here is that that has never been really discussed publicly is that we nearly got into a shooting war with the soviets within you know 40 less than 48 hours after the korean airline shootdown, where we had a near confrontation between mig-23s and f-15s um when mig-23s were ordered to shoot down a u.s navy ep3 which is the intel collection version of the p3 um submarine anti-submarine warfare aircraft um and it that situation was diffused really by the commander of us forces japan himself who made sure that once the ep3 was safe that we were going to let the mig-23s return to their base safely um but as i described in the book it was a really near run thing i mean we came within seconds of having um a dogfight between f-15s and mig-23s which the mig-23s would have lost Mm. (laughs) so um, uh, it was cool-headedness on the part of um, the real commander at that time a guy named general chuck donnelly that uh, prevented that from spinning out of control but the the so fortunately he did keep a lid on things but uh, the alert systems in both militaries went up as a result of the korean airline shootdown, and especially on the soviet side and um and, but also on the u.s side and then the um next event that occurred that fall was just a few weeks after the korean airline shootdown, when there was a um spurious reports from soviet missile warning satellites that those reports went into their national missile defense center outside of moscow indicating that there were salvos of icbm launches coming from the u.s air force base in grant forks and those were not they were spurious reports but the soviets didn't know that and their satellites were reporting them as as uh, uh very as maximum accuracy reports Mm -hmm. Um, and that night there was a guy uh, running the watch lieutenant colonel stanislav petrov who was an expert in the signals produced by those satellites and he determined that these have to be false alarms these can't be real um but as ensuing salvos occurred (laughs) Uh, in the reports from the satellites, even Petrov's um, confidence in his own analysis began to waver. <laughs> and uh, so he had a terrifying 30 minutes or so in which he had to make decisions and, and advise his leadership in Moscow as to what course of action to take. Uh, and remember, this is all under the, the circumstances where the Soviets are expecting First strike yeah. from the United States, and Man uh, Petrov was not, as far as we know, he was not aware of Operation Ryan, but he was making these calls as best that he, as he could that night, and we in the West were unaware of this incident for many, many years, and we only became aware that this had occurred at all. Uh, in 1999 or the year Mm. 2000 um, when a uh, memoir was published by a general officer who was in Petrov's chain of command. And one of the chapters in his memoir is called The Man Who Saved the World. And it's a description of what Petrov dealt with that night and how uh, he was able to give his leadership the correct advice and not advise a retaliatory strike for ICBM launches that actually had not occurred. Jeez. So it was, again, another near run
0: thing. Yeah, Yeah, people don't realize, I mean, what if there was a different person on watch that night that was a little less clear headed, a little less logical, perhaps, a little less educated in in these different systems? I mean, not everybody is a Petrov. Maybe there was somebody else there, the new guy on watch. Uh, and he sees a launch and he just reports it up the chain of command. He's just a conduit for what he's, what, what that, uh, what the data is telling him, which is, oh, there's a launch. Uh, and he just puts that up the chain of command and back down comes, okay, well we're launched too. that. It's that close. It's one guy. It's one guy. And, and I would argue it was one,
1: it may be a little bit of a stretch, but not too far of a stretch to say it was one guy after the Korean airline shoot down. It was general Donnelly who who was the coolest head and said, Mm. we're not going to shoot these MIGs down. Mm. When there were other general officers in the room, I was in the command center with him who were advising him to do it. Wow. um, He was within his rights to do it. Um, So, yeah, one guy in each instance. And your point about Petrov is made even more salient by the fact that he wasn't supposed to be on duty. Oh, jeez, He was subbing for somebody who was sick. Wow. And he he got called in that afternoon and told, you're going to be taking the watch tonight because Dimitri's got the
0: flu or <laughs> <Right>. something. <laughs> oh, my God. So imagine all those things that led up to that. Yeah. What if uh, Dimitri uh, doesn't go to this one place to, you know, get something to eat where he gets the flu and then comes down with it? Like so many things that line up to get this person in that place at the right yes. time to prevent a nuclear exchange. It's just it's yeah. incredible. It yeah. is or what if he is in that spot and prior to that we do shoot down those migs and now things are even more on
1: edge right right exactly right
0: And and what happened to him later on petrov
1: petrov is one of the saddest stories of the cold war i think on a personal basis he was uh he was actually reprimanded for what he did that night and uh he, he didn't keep an accurate log. He was trying to save the world, so he wasn't too worried about writing things down, I guess. that was They, they dinged him on a couple of technicalities and not following certain protocols. Um, and as a result, he was never promoted again. The real reason they dinged him, though, was because he revealed the flaws in their OCO missile warning satellites mm. and that these... OKO missile warning satellites were really not ready for operational use. And he embarrassed a lot of people much higher up in the chain of command. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why he got he got crushed and he was never promoted again. And um, he he retired as a lieutenant colonel. And he he did get a job uh, in the Soviet defense industry. For a number of years, Um, his his wife. I talk about her being sick in the book and she actually did die of cancer. Uh, so he was a widower with kids and he became an alcoholic. He, he was uh, kind of a mess for the rest of his life. Um, toward the very end of his life, when he was in his seventies, he did receive some accolades from the European Union, mm-hmm. the United Nations for what he did that night, the 27th of September, 1983. Um, but, and it, it, I'm sure it, it gratified him to some degree, but he still, he died very poor and, uh, as a kind of broken down man Mm. in his late seventies. Jeez.
0: And what kind of, what do you think back then, uh, are you seeing when you're in that position? What was he seeing? Like, is he seeing like, like, today you envision a tactical operations center with flat screen TVs all over the place. And, you know, maybe this artificial intelligence is working a little bit over here, but you're seeing a visual representation of uh, what's happening, projected what will happen, like all these sorts of things. What are you seeing back then with 1983 technology? Are you just getting numbers on a, on a like dot matrix type printer coming out? Or are you seeing something on a, on a computer screen that has a little green? Dot that shows something warming up. What do you? What is he seeing during, as he's uh, making these calls?
1: Yeah, they did have a big screen in the in that National Missile Defense Center, and so it, my understanding is that the alerts would come up on that big screen. It would. They would have after some number crunching. They would get a geolocation on where the launches quote-unquote were emanating from Mm -hmm. Um, So he he could tell his he had a bunch of analysts working for him As the watch commander they had electro optical analysts. They had um, radar signals analysts and other signal processing guys and um, These OCO satellites had both IR and and EO both infrared and electro optical sensors On board, but it's not instantaneous. So it's not clear just how much Mm -hmm. they were able to see, but they were getting signals from certainly from the IR that um, he was asking his analysts to analyze in real time. You know, give me what you think we're dealing with um, and how many. And they were able to make judgments on. Well, it looks like they're, you know, two to five missiles in this salvo. It looks like there are three or four in this one and, and that kind of thing. And they did geolocate it to Grand Forks Air Force Base pretty quickly.
0: That's pretty good. I mean, for, for that time, it almost sounds like a uh, like war games that we're uh, seeing up on the screen. You're seeing thing, like that, that kind of uh, technology. It sounds like anyway. Yeah,
1: it wasn't quite as advanced as that because they didn't. As far as I know, they didn't really have any kind of help, you know, any AI-ish help. It was all gray matter. And they had a bunch of, of different sections of analysts that were looking at the data and, and reporting back to him and the command center.
0: Yeah.
1: So it was, it would have been somewhat rudimentary, but yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, that's even, I mean, it's, I mean, that does come down to that one person and you're looking at essentially math equations. Um, and, uh, and figuring out, uh, how to make your best judgment and then what you're upon, and you're not just sending it up the chain in the United States chain of command where if you're wrong, maybe, yeah, you don't get promoted, but then you, you know, there's plenty of other options for you in this country. You're sending it up the chain in the Soviet union, uh, which is already on a hair trigger brink of war, early eighties, uh, your prospects for life after that, when you're wrong, uh, are not great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot to risk right there. So imagine we yeah. are launching. Imagine he's wrong that night. I mean yes. he's dead anyway, probably. Maybe that's maybe that's uh right <laughs> that, that's <laughs> nuclear solid. nuclear yeah, exactly. <laughs> nuclear <laughs> weapons inbound, you're you know, unless they're not going anywhere near him. I don't know. But uh I mean Moscow's <laughs> top of the list probably. So uh so you're done anyway. So I guess that's factored in. But uh geez, I mean, regardless, yeah, that's I, a tough I that's that's a tough it. position to be in
1: in the, in the book to give a sense of the tension that he was dealing with. And, and I put Levchenko there with him that night. So you're seeing it through Levchenko's eyes and you're getting that firsthand in Cal, again, this notion of putting the reader in the room Mm -hmm. and through either Katani's eyes or Levchenko's eyes. And in this case, it's through our buddy Levchenko.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's crazy that, uh, you know, not more, obviously we didn't hear about it back then. Highly classified. We didn't even know about it until 1999, where this chapter comes out in a, in a, a, a senior military official's memoir. Um, but what lessons do you think that we can take from this story, from this time period in history, when we look at our relations with Russia today, uh, our relations with China today vis-a-vis Taiwan? What's going on with Russia and Ukraine? Uh, what's happening in <laughs> Uh, North Korea, um, but uh, what lessons can we take from that time period and can we uh, can we take and, and and use this wisdom going forward in our foreign policy?
1: Well, I think I think that um, the final crisis, the Able Archer 83 crisis, which was just again, just all these things are happening rather in a compressed time frame. And the Able Archer crisis was roughly the first two weeks of November of 83. Um, and where we were nearly brought to the brink of war un- unknowingly because we were mirror imaging, and this gets hopefully gets to your question a bit, Jack, because the, the U.S. side was mirror imaging the Soviet side. We were blithely going forward with this Able Archer 83 nuclear war exercise um really without taking into consideration how it would be viewed by the kremlin which is not an exercise right and the kremlin viewed it as okay it may be an exercise but it's a cover for Mm -hmm. a a sneak attack and their reference point and they talk about it repeatedly uh and putin talks about it even today is uh 1941, Operation Barbarossa mm-hmm. and the surprise attack of Germany on the Soviet Union. And they they remember the leadership in the Kremlin were were alive and they were adults in World War II. in the guys that were leading the Kremlin in the 80s. And they remembered Operation Barbarossa not as something from history, but as something they lived through. Mm-hmm. They didn't want another Operation Barbarossa on their watch. They weren't going to allow that to happen like Stalin did. Mm-hmm. And that was so that was their mindset. But our our mindset was that, well, we're just doing a command post exercise, not thinking that, well, but the Soviets are viewing this through the context of everything that's happened this fall
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and including the event we didn't know about, the Petrov event. And the fact that the Reforger exercise that fall, and Reforger was the reinforcement of Europe by US forces during the Cold War. The Reforger that year was extremely large and sophisticated, more so than usual. And Able Archer 83 was merely the last chapter in the exercise curriculum. Mm. And so the Soviets saw this interlocking set of exercises that were, from their point of view, extremely provocative. And then the final exercise, the pièce de résistance exercise of, of the period Able Archer 83, is co- coinciding with the, with the real-world deployment of Pershing II missiles to West Germany and ground launch cruise missiles to the UK. So to their eyes, this all looks like These guys are serious. They're preparing for a major war. And so the reaction on the Soviet side was to prepare for a major war. And their nuclear forces reaction, uh, both in the theater in Europe and strategically, was unprecedented. And it it was unlike anything they did even during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And... Not only that, but they put their conventional forces on alert and they actually had forces, ground forces deploy in East Germany and Poland out of garrison with two weeks rations and two weeks ammo loads. And so they're doing all these things. And, and um, it was only when um, really, again, one guy, one officer who was the head of happened to be the head of Air Force Intelligence in Europe. Uh, a real guy named General uh, Lenny Perutz. he saw all this going on and, and it all added up to him that, oh my god, they think Able Archer's real. They think we're really going to launch on them. And he ran that up the chain, his NATO chain, uh, and he was asked, well, should we retaliate in kind then? If they're doing all this, if they're doing unprecedented preparations for nuclear war, should we do the same? And he said, no, no, we should, we should stand down and we should bring Abel Archer to a close as quickly as we can. And, um, just, you know, behave as though everything's normal and maybe that'll assuage their concerns a little bit. Um, it, it was the right call But as Perutz said later in his life, he did it just on gut instinct. He Mm. said, "I, I didn't really know um what i should do but it just seemed like that was the right call but he he did so without um the benefit of intelligence that cia had on uh, that had been collected from oleg gordievsky by the the british where gordievsky was warning the british that they think this is real the mm. Soviets, the kremlin think that you're really preparing for nuclear war and CIA had that intel, but they didn't pass it along to the intelligence officials in NATO. And something that Perutz later in life was quite angry about. But um, yeah, so he he made that call, and um, it it was a very uh, near run thing again. And and I talk about some of the things that NATO did during able archer 83 to make it more realistic and one of which was they they changed the codes the communication codes uh at the apex of the exercise at the Mm. point where they were going to ask for nuclear weapons release from president reagan and margaret thatcher uh so the soviets saw that oh my god they changed the codes we can't collect anything and and i you know I, i weave that into the story but uh so was all of those, those added elements of realism into this exercise that made the Soviets extremely anxious, to put it mildly?
0: Yep. Yeah, putting yourself in your, your enemy's shoes is uh, I found highly valuable at, uh, at all different levels, tactical, operational, strategic, in this case. Um, and we neglect to do that time and time again. I think we neglect to do that for whatever whatever reason I mean the lessons are out there uh, it seems uh, how long was Abel Archer on the books before it uh, was, was it a was it something that we'd we'd done before or just not uh, under these kind of uh, stressors and tensions, or what was, uh, um, yeah. what was it's history
1: it was generally done every year uh, there were some years as I understand it when it was skipped it was generally done every year as the culminating part of the reforger mm. set of exercises Uh, but this particular year it was it was highly realistic they the scenario that they developed even called for b-52s to come from the u.s which it had never done before Mm. um so yeah it was a command post exercise but there were elements of of actual nuclear delivery systems being utilized um and so it to to the U.S. way of thinking, and I've talked to a couple of guys that were involved in Able Archer eighty three, and from their point of view, it was like, well, this wasn't all that much different than what we'd done before. It was maybe a little bit different, but why would they get their you know panties in a bundle over this? Because it 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 you know to us it wasn't it wasn't that different, and and they have a valid point, but it's the context. Mm-hmm. It's the context of all of these predicates, all these things that had come before. And this kind of Operation Ryan reaching a climax from the Soviets' point of view that our guys didn't know about. And I've, I, a couple of um, these gentlemen that I've spoken to who are involved in Able Archer 83 have read the book and they're stunned. They're like, I didn't know any of this was going on. We had no clue that they were on nuclear alert on the other side of the wall. We didn't know they deployed SS-11s with nuclear weapons uploaded. We didn't know they were uploading MiG-27s and SU-24s with nukes.
0: We just were, you know, doing our thing. Doing your exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Heard of that paycheck. Oh, man. Uh, And where was was Putin at this time? Is he... uh, I mean, he's a, is he a young KGB officer at this time or where is, where is yeah, he? Yeah,
1: Putin Putin in 83 was, uh, I believe this is right. He was in, he would have been in Dresden at that time in East Germany. Um, he was in Dresden, I think from 83 to 89, 90, 89 when he, he left and went back to Leningrad. So yeah, he, I'm, pretty sure he was in Dresden
0: in 83 but he's active in the in the KGB at this point yeah yeah
1: he was a KGB officer he was he was a lieutenant colonel in the KGB in Dresden um so yeah and i, I th- he was there five or six years so i pretty sure he would have been in Dresden already by 83
0: yeah um, so if he, you yeah, if you take that experience then uh through his eyes or what he's learned since, obviously, yes. and then, uh, then, uh, kind of superimpose that over his, uh, responsibilities now and what's going on in Ukraine. It's, uh, you know, some things aren't surprising, I guess I should, I should say, um, uh, especially when <laughs> he tells us what he's going to do, but, uh, th- that aside from, from that, from those, the, those kind of, uh, of tells, um, just, from the end of the Cold War up to today, to that Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, very little of that should be surprising to us, especially if we look at it through the lens of history, uh, through his experience in the KGB, what happened here in the in the early '80s, uh, putting yeah. yourself in your enemy's shoes, uh, looking at things from their perspective. So when you when you look at Putin's position or Russia's position uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine, um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well,
1: I agree with what you've said. I th- and, and moreover, I think Vladimir Putin agrees with what you just said. <laughs> and he he has referenced the 1983 crisis mm. in more than one speech.
0: Mm.
1: And he the last time I'm aware he did it was in his his Christmas press conference, which he holds every year uh and it was the press conference it would have been in 2021 and um or maybe it was 2020 but in any event he he's referenced the 83 crisis and he said in that christmas address i'm thinking of that uh relations with the west have not been this bad since the 1983 crisis wow and it's funny because in this country, people go, what, what's exactly he, talking? What is he
0: talking about? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a crazy guy that innovated his neighbor. Well, put yourself in those shoes. And, 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 but
1: in Russia, people remember this crisis. Oh. And uh, another factor that shows how I think, um, real the Soviets believe this crisis was, was that in, during Able Archer in 93, uh, pardon me, in 83, in November of 83, the Soviets had implemented civil defense measures that they didn't even implement during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were routinely having factories, office workers, schools evacuate and run nuclear um, warfare drills, go to their fallout shelters. They were doing this frequently during this period. They also, canceled that fall the soviet army's participation in the grain harvest which every year they mobilized we it we would find this incredible but they mobilized the soviet ground forces to go out and help with the harvest and they canceled it in 83 it's the only year during the entire cold war they did that wow and they kept the guys in garrison and on alert and so on and um and there was a a member of the Politburo in Andropov's Politburo, whose last name, ironically, is or was Romanov. Mm. And Romanov gave a number of speeches, national te- nationally televised addresses in late October and through the first few weeks of November, in which he was telling people, take these civil defense exercises seriously. We're on the brink of nuclear war. Things have never been this bad before, not even in 1962. you know. And so they were taking it rather seriously. So there is some historical memory in Russia mm-hmm. of the 83 crisis that does not exist in the United States. Yeah. And so anyway, I think to really attempt to answer your question, yes, this is all prelude to building Putin's mental furniture and the the mental furniture of the guys that he surrounds himself with who uh, believe that NATO is inherently aggressive. It's an offensive uh, alliance. Mm. These are words they use all the time. Um, And they point not only to things like 83, but more recent things, the war in Kosovo in 1999, which most Americans have forgotten if they really even knew it was going on mm-hmm. at the time, um, it's a big touchpoint for the Soviets, for the Russians, pardon me, and, and for Putin. And he, he references NATO's aggression in in the Kosovo War and how NATO bombed Belgrade um, mm-hmm. and, and a modern Slavic city was reduced to rubble by the NATO air forces. Uh, he references that. And Uh, And then, of course, the the expansion of NATO, he has somewhat of a revisionist view of what was promised or not promised um, back back in the Yeltsin days and so on. Mm -hmm. But um, he views the expansion of NATO as a direct threat to Russia's territorial integrity and sovereignty and and all of that. And so we we just again, it's the mirror imaging problem, we have a mm. really hard time understanding how can they possibly think that way? right? Uh, and I think that uh, someone, I mentioned General Leonard Perutz earlier, who was chief of Air Force Intel in Europe uh, at the time, he really understood the Soviets. He was a student of mm. their doctrine, of their operational art and so on. And when he saw things happening in the battle space, he did so within that context. He goes, oh, my God, this is what this means. you know. And I, I just don't believe we have a lot of that depth of understanding of Russia any longer in the U.S. government, either in the State Department, DOD, or the intel community.
0: Yeah, it's tough because uh, I don't think we have that depth of understanding about most of our adversaries for for whatever reason, uh, a lot of distractions out there. Obviously, today, these bureaucracies being so big that you just get lost if you are that person that actually does understand the enemy. You're at a desk somewhere and you're not in a in a position to really uh, affect change. You can issue up a report. But once again, there are so many distractions these days, so many inputs. It's not just us on our phones. It's Intel. It's a it's all over the place. And right. how do you sift through this? What kind of algorithms do you use to get that one thing that needs to rise to the top to get to you at that per, at that point in time that you need that information to make a call that averts nuclear war like in 1983. Um, now there's so much of it. Um, and I don't say any of those things about understanding your enemy to excuse uh, Putin's actions, but what I mean by right. that is that understanding your enemy allows us then to make better, wiser decisions to avert war, which affect people like we're seeing in Ukraine now, just the, uh, yes. normal everyday families in Ukraine that are having to deal with, uh, with this sort of thing, um, with a war uh, that's really based on a lot of maybe misconceptions, misunderstandings, uh, not understanding your enemy, both sides, him not understanding us, us not understanding them. Um, so it's just tough and it's frustrating. Um, uh, but it but, uh, brings me to uh, the importance of the individual. Um, and, you know, we saw it in 1983. So let's, What are your thoughts on the importance of the right person in the right place at the right time, uh, individual responsibility, uh, uh, decentralized command, pushing authorities down versus processes and institutions and maybe artificial intelligence, uh, all these things that take that individual more and more out of the decision making Mm -hmm. process? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, one of the themes of this book, and you put your finger right on it, of course, Jack, is is individual action and people taking responsibility for tough decisions. Uh, and it's seen, I think, in each of the three crises of the fall of 83. So I obviously, I do think that's important. I would say also, though, that I think another theme in the book is the importance of of institutions and one that i make use of is the military liaison mission which most americans actually most people in the military <laughs> even when i was on active duty didn't even know it existed yeah. uh-huh. and what do you mean we have guys in east germany you know i mean it was just inconceivable uh and but we did and and those individuals uh on both sides both the soviet military liaison mission. The U.S. and of course the French and the British had military liaison missions in Berlin too. They got to know each other and they mm-hmm. they got to understand each other. And you did have the liaison part of their mission was you had the ability to go to a Group of Soviet Forces Germany headquarters and talk to your counterparts and say, mm-hmm. "Wait a minute, what are you guys doing? You know, what's if you're doing this exercise, we need to know what the hell you're doing." and yeah. You know, help me out here, Yvonne, and um, and and they would go have dinner together and drink vodka together, and and there. But it was also a mechanism, and I I use in this book the, the MLM specifically Potsdam House, which was the Americans' uh, bastion in East Germany, um, as the scene for the the communications that take place during the Abel Archer. Crisis, and with Ivan Levchenko and Katani both in the same room, and we did have those mechanisms. There, there was a place for people to sit down and say, "Okay, what what are you guys doing? Help me understand what's going." And uh, I don't think we. I know we don't have the MLM anymore. It was disbanded at the end of the Cold War, and. Whereas the Russians I know have a liaison office at NATO headquarters, it doesn't seem to get used anymore. So um, it's a little dusty in there. Yeah. So I, I just I think institutions can be helpful. I, I think with regard to your point about AI and machine learning, um, I I'm a I'm a believer in the utility of systems like that as aids to human thinking. Mm but only as aids to human thinking. And humans still have the best computer on the planet. And those things can be very helpful in terms of understanding context. Mm -hmm. And, And what does, have we seen, is there a pattern here? Have we seen this before? That's what AI and ML, it's one of the things they're good for. They're good for lots of things, but that's one of the things. And that can be very helpful to people in a highly ambiguous situation, trying to figure out what's really going on here—a um, situation like Petrov confronted, mm-hmm. or that Kevin Katani confronted that night of the Korean Airline shootdown, because we didn't know what was going on—and yeah. we're, you know, there's a point where Katani asks the NCO of the watch, "Have you ever seen this before?" And he says, "No." And Katani said, "Well, if you haven't seen it before, then..." It really is unusual because you this guy had history mm-hmm. and so on. So, but it, machine tools like those, you know can help with that kind of context and help with pattern recognition and, and, and pulling data out, doing data analytics that um, humans just don't have time for, right in a crisis situation. So there's definitely a role for them. And I'm a proponent of them, but not to the exclusion of human judgment.
0: Yeah, i was curious if we had some of those things a little, or, or if the Soviets had them and they were a little more advanced back in 1983, and it removed Petra from the uh, from the decision making process or from the advisory process. Um, but also says something about you know the chain of command over there. I mean, they did end up trusting him that yes, night. And, they did, you know. And from some of us who might not be uh, be totally immersed in that, I mean, there there's some credit to be given there as well because that yeah. sounds very unsoviet. Uh, to to trust a, a middle ranking person down here, especially if there's some data telling you that, because uh, that's another person or people that are now risking, their heads on the chopping block as well via this trust. So I think that's yeah. a that's an interesting part of all this as well.
1: It, it is. Be yes,
0: be interesting to talk to those guys and see what they were they were thinking. They're probably long gone now. I would think the people at those senior levels uh, back in '83, but be interesting to see what because uh, they could very easily have overridden. I would think yes that uh, oh, yeah. that advice.
1: Yes, they could have. And and what what I have read in terms of commentary from some of the senior guys in the Soviet air defense forces at that time they did give a lot of weight to the fact that it was Petrov. Oh wow. That mm-hmm. night. Yeah. And that they they knew he understood. He was in charge of algorithm development for these satellite signals as well as other things and so you know if he was saying these were false alarms i know these signals okay got it yeah
0: relationships yeah. and trust yeah interesting right man right place yeah no okay what do you do after 1983 how long I mean, you stay in the air force for a good number of years after that it's all in the intel community is that right
1: yeah i stayed on active duty Yes, I was always an intelligence officer. I stayed on active duty until the end of 1987. Um, and then I stayed in the reserve for five years after that. Um, I was activated in, for Desert Storm. <clears throat> um, and I actually served in the Pentagon. Um, my wartime assignment was different, but I had a broken pelvis at the time. And so is this
0: from a helicopter crash? Is this what I understand? No, this was, this was, this. Cause helped. there are two helicopter crashes, right? Is that yes.
1: It? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Those are back problems I've got, but this was a bicycle crash okay. actually.
0: <laughs> and, um, those I, things are was, dangerous. Those bicycles stay, yeah, sir. stay in the helicopters.
1: Yeah. And, uh, anyway, I ended up, uh, working in checkmate, which is the air force's, Think tank slash air campaign planning center in the Pentagon, and and they're the guys that planned the air campaign for Desert Storm, the highly successful air campaign. And I was um, brought in as liaison with uh, the intel community to help with collection management and things like that. And it was fascinating. Fascinating thing. And I, I write about actually the fourth book in my series is, is about the Gulf war is about desert storm. And, um, and so I put Katani in that situation and it's, uh, yeah, that was, that was quite a, quite an experience.
0: Do you get to, uh, during this time frame, or do you get to debrief any, um, uh, Russian officials that come over either during the cold war or after the fall of the Soviet union? What's, uh, what was your experience there?
1: I, I did during the Cold War. I worked with uh, my first assignment after Japan. Um, we, I was in a unit that um, was called the Soviet Affairs Directorate, and we had, we had defectors that worked in that, in that organization. Um, and we also had access to KGB and, and GRU defectors that were mainly handled by CIA, but we also had access to them. And so, yeah, I got to meet a number of those guys and, and actually my character, Ivan Levchenko is, is a blend of several of those characters, some of their, their better traits.
0: <laughs> yeah. And how did that work? How did you meet them in this country, uh, overseas? And then. Oh,
1: here. Yeah. Over here in, in the, in Washington. Yeah. yeah. Cause those guys were, they were, uh, they were wanted men,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> they were doing the rounds. Yes. What, uh, so, did you get to develop any relationships with them or are you are just asking some questions to confirm certain things and then it's on to the next person? What does that, what does that look like when you're sitting down well, across the table or is it a group and he's on the other side of this big table? What's, what does that look like? There?
1: Yeah. I, we would sometimes talk to them as a group. Um, we would socialize with them as well. Uh, Sometimes, I, I think, I do remember one or two one-on-one situations, but it, they were usually group meetings. Um, there was one guy that I, I developed a rapport with. I had a lot of admiration for him. He had been in, he was an East Asian specialist. He was a, an interesting chap because he started out in life as a GRU officer and then transferred to KGB mm. and spent most of his career as a KGB guy and he defected to the united states in tokyo um and he was as i said he was an east asian specialist he spoke japanese and chinese fluently mandarin fluently and uh he he wrote books in those languages he was quite a a guy so I, i i i kind of leveraged that experience with him in creating the Levchenko character in in my book, you know, Levchenko's pretty sophisticated and multilingual, and he understands his area is American studies, that's Mm -hmm. his gig. Um, He's an American specialist, and he understands the Americans, Levchenko does pretty well. But I was modeling it on this guy's understanding of Japan and China, and yeah, so...
0: What were, were there anything that stood out to you from, uh, talking to a few of those guys, uh, defectors, um, some misconceptions about, uh, America or, uh, w- were there any through lines there that, uh, that stood out to you?
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the guys that we worked with is someone that members of your audience may have heard of, and that's, uh, um, Victor Belenko. Belenko. Um, Belenko was, a He was a soviet air defense fighter pilot in the far east and he was a mig-25 pilot and he defected to japan in his mig-25 in 1976. Um, and we used to work with him and we would take him to um various air force bases around the united states and have him talk to the fighter crews have him talk to guys that were would have been his adversaries you know f-15 pilots and f-16 guys and he was quite a guy. He was he was a bit of a wild man. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh he was he I I know on a, on the first couple of those trips to US Air Force bases that he he thought they were Potemkin villages in his really Yeah. That this is not a real base, this is a show base, this is not how people really live and you know, I want to see the BX and we take him, and he'd say, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a showcase. This is not real. And, uh, and he, he, on one trip, he, I think we're at Langley Air Force Base in Hampton, Virginia, and he wanted to see, uh, an NCO's quarters. And so we went to have dinner actually at a master sergeant's house on base one night. And, and he was just, he couldn't believe it he he said well this is nicer than officer housing <laughs> so a union i mean how can yeah. this and and I, I remember one time um talking to Belenko, and he said something to the effect that after all i've seen of the united states and this is after he'd been around for a while um he said uh i don't have any idea how we ever believed we could beat you wow
0: that's cool yeah interesting man wow um and jumping back to to um uh, nuclear weapons and and uh ukraine russia united states for yeah. for a moment um uh during the the clinton administration there are uh not a, not treaties but uh, an agreement for ukraine to to turn back over those stockpiles of uh of russian now uh weapons that they'd had built up during the cold right. war um and they do um what what are your thoughts on that uh them doing it one and then two what message that sends in the future uh, as far as uh negotiations go and treaties go and memorandums go and agreements go as far as giving up your weapons for a future promised protection and what does that uh, what does that bode for the how does that bode for the future
1: oh it's an excellent question and that's the the budapest memorandum of mm-hmm. 1994 right um that made those guarantees to kiev and the ukrainians uh i remember that quite well i was um in industry i i spent the rest of my career in industry but in defense and intelligence and mainly building systems Mm -hmm. building different kinds of collection systems and and fusion systems and weapon systems but in any event um, at that time uh the company i was uh working for we were involved in our arms control monitoring and building sensors for that and fusion we built a fusion center in vienna austria for nuclear specifically around nuclear weapons proliferation and monitoring that for that was done for the united nations in any event um so ukraine was part of that i remember of course the, the West was we were in a bit of a panic after the fall of the Soviet Union over the security of these nuclear weapons. Yes, um, that and and the two major countries were Kazakhstan and uh, and Ukraine uh, that we were concerned about. So it was this the Budapest Agreement was extremely important in um, diffusing this situation and getting these weapons repatriated to russia where we believed we could have better control over them and so on and so forth now so that was the impetus behind it Uh, of course given events since 2014 uh, if one is a ukrainian one looks back at that um, agreement with the jaundiced eye and says well you know we we were Invaded in 2014, we've been re-invaded in 2022. Um, those guarantees don't mean a lot, and and it to the extent that it creates a model for other countries to look at, it's obviously not a very you know propitious. It's not a very good model, and I think it will have an effect. I mean, these things always do, and. Uh, if you go back, I mentioned Desert Storm earlier. If you go back to um, the Persian Gulf War, the success that the United States, particularly the Air Force and Air Forces, um, had in that war just solidified everybody's belief around the world that well, you know, you really don't want to get into a fair fight with the United States. Mm. And and why did they feel why did they feel free to invade and and go after Iraq and in 1991. Well, it's because Saddam didn't have nuclear weapons. So I better get some nuclear weapons. And, um, and you've seen North Korea act upon that. You've seen other countries act or, or try to act on that. Uh, so I think this will, I'm drawing a, obviously a parallel between the two. I think the, the experience of Ukraine will have a very negative effect. Uh, trying to convince countries around the world you shouldn't develop nuclear weapons because w- you we've got your back and and i'm not you know saying that i'm not throwing stones at any particular administration or anything like that um, but I, it's a terrible precedent it's just a terrible precedent
0: yeah And you're in your research and talking to these guys and in the 80s, um, did you ever and we're talking tactical nuclear weapons versus strategic uh, weapons? And then remember the suitcase bomb that people talked about and there have been some defectors that have talked about it and there's controversy about whether they actually existed or obviously weren't an actual suitcase. They were a lot larger than that. But uh, hiding those in certain countries around the world. um, Do you have any insight into into that or what happened to those?
1: You know, I really don't. Uh, I I don't have any special insight into that. But
0: I think they're pretty old by this point. If anyone, <laughs> if there are any still buried yeah. out there at some at some some place, it was a it
1: was a real fear. I know at that time, again in the mid '90s, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, loose nukes. It was a, a huge issue, which is largely forgotten yeah. now. But uh, you know, and and I often tell folks that. This war in Ukraine is already a nuclear war, in, in as much as the Russians have played the nuclear card right mm-hmm. from the beginning, uh, and been waving the nuclear, rattling the nuclear saber, and it's had a, it's had the intended effect in limiting NATO's uh, freedom of action mm-hmm. and straining NATO's options in terms of how to deal with the Russian invasion of Ukraine this time and. Uh, and their, their threats of nuclear war are, I think, you know, Director of Central Intelligence Burns talked about it uh, recently in Open Testimony. And he said, well, you know, the, he was asked directly, what's the threat of a nuclear conflict in, in, um, in, over Ukraine? And he said, well, it's not zero. Yeah. And he said, I'm not predicting one, but it is, it, there is a probability and he gave several, he painted several scenarios under which that might occur. And uh, one of which is if the Russians really think they're losing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the question is obviously the, the baseline question is, do they have the capability? And if that answer is yes, then OK, well, that that opens it as a possibility. Um, so it's yeah. a it's an interesting thing to. To wrestle with all these years after what we thought was the uh, the end, quote unquote, of the uh, of the Cold War, to be revisiting a lot of these issues, and uh, and, you, and here you talk about you have a great uh, timeline in here that goes uh, the back with all these different different touch points of uh, events that were very uh, impactful in my life. But um, you you have uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in here as part of the, the timeline. Um, uh, what lessons do you think they took from that that they revisit? today, either in ukraine or just as part of their their foreign policy from their let's call it a 10-year misadventure maybe in uh, in afghanistan well
1: i think one of the lessons i think they probably take away from afghanistan is uh you it's important to define what the near abroad really is and the, the near abroad is a phrase the russians use to describe countries that are contiguous to them that are of strategic almost existential importance Mm -hmm. and i I think the russians then and and today both in the 80s and today would say well afghanistan doesn't fit that description afghanistan really the the fundamental mistake around afghanistan was it wasn't part of our vital national interest the, it wasn't part of the Soviets' vital national interest, and but Ukraine is, mm. and I think that's that's a key difference that they absolutely view Ukraine as the most important country in the near abroad, and it is vital to their national interest, and therefore it it uh, re- requires uh, a degree of sacrifice that. Would have not been required in Afghanistan as bad as Afghanistan was. So I think I, I I think that's the principal lesson they took away from Afghanistan is that you before you go into a country you better make sure it's really of existential importance to us.
0: Yeah, and I think we if we took lessons from the Soviet experience in Afghanistan uh, in early or late 2001, early 2002 timeframe, we took some of the wrong lessons, it seems, um, on our side of the house, if we looked at it at all, if we didn't uh, fall prey to uh, imperial hubris right out of the gate, it seems. um, We looked at how many troops, how many many forces, how many assets were on the ground, and how many built up over a 10-year period in Afghanistan uh, from the Soviet side of the house, and we didn't want that same thing to happen. And because of that, because of taking that lesson, which I think is not the lesson to take, um, we didn't flood Afghanistan when we needed to in the beginning to prevent an escape of bin Laden in Tora Bora, where we needed more troops, not at the levels the Soviets had, but certainly not even at the levels that we, we got not long after we said, no, we want to limit the number of troops on the ground here. It grew, obviously, way past right. way mm. past that. But it seems like we took a we didn't take the right lesson from the soviet experience it seems
1: yeah i think that's i think that's largely true i know it was there was a lot of debate at the time in 2001 uh at cia and in the pentagon about how best to go about doing this i what i remember too is that there was a fair amount of um uh, Lack of communication between the Pentagon and CIA at, at the outset, and that um, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld had his own view about how we ought to be doing things, mm-hmm. and it didn't really comport with CIA's. And that, I think, was a problem right from the beginning. Um, and then we ended up fighting, in my view, two separate wars in Afghanistan we had a counterinsurgency war and a counterterrorism war. Oh, yeah. And we couldn't, you know, we were fighting, those are two different wars. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think your comment about Tora Bora is spot on. I mean, we we didn't have enough force in place, um, or at least we didn't we didn't put enough forces into Tora Bora to do the job, but um, in my assessment of it. So, yeah, I don't know that, I know that there was a lot of discussion in 2001 about, what did the Soviets do and what did they do wrong? And what can we learn from that? And I uh I know at least at CIA, there was a lot of soul searching about that that I think was pretty useful. I mm-hmm. think the agency, I think they did try to take that to heart. And they they still had relationships from the Soviet war in Afghanistan with the Northern Alliance and um and so on, and there were a lot of veterans of the soviet war in afghanistan at cia that were still around and um yeah Yeah. that was actually the last time i I was asked to return to active duty oh really nice (laughs) was um it was just a two or three weeks after 9-11 i got a call in my office and uh my admin said it's some general from air force special operations command
0: no kidding And i said
1: okay so this guy (laughs) gets on and uh what can i and i didn't know him and i said what can i do for you he says well we're going to activate you and i said well i'm not in the reserve anymore i'm <laughs> not even in active reserve it's been a long time and he said well you've got the right credentials we want you to go to afghanistan and you know and um uh we had this long conversation about how would this even work You know, said, well, <laughs> anyway it was uh and i it it, it didn't it didn't happen. And I was really not in a position to to do so, but it was, uh, and I remember telling this guy, he called me back a couple of days later. Very nice man. And, you know, uh, and he said, uh, you know, we're tr- I'm trying to work this out. Maybe we can work something with the agency out. And I, I said, boy, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> <After
0: me. laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Cause I know a couple other people. And it's interesting. It's the air force that called these other people that I know as well after Is that. Right. Yeah and I haven't heard it I mean I'm sure it did happen in the army and you know marines and yeah. and, and navy yeah. um but I haven't heard too much about it and I know a few people in those in those circles but uh, but the air force for whatever reason it's interesting that you're you're not the first person that's uh, that's told me something like this, uh, that the that's Air Force has reached out well after the person is is uh, long gone from any uh, reserve time mode or, you know, active reserve or whatever. So that's interesting that the Air Force keeps tabs like that, where it seems like maybe the other ones just kind of forget. And they're just like, who do we have now? You know, who's in the bullpen? Uh, Air Force seems to have, like, uh, seems to remember, which is interesting. You know? uh, but getting back to the book, there's some cool yep. things here uh, and uh, great quotes. And I just want to read a Couple of things, real quick here. Uh, part one: the man who could see the future. And you have this quote from Ronald Reagan, the Reagan diaries, and he says, uh, "The more I experience, the more experience I had with Soviet leaders, the more I began to realize that many Soviet officials feared us not only as adversaries, but as potential aggressors who might hurl nuclear weapons at them in a first strike." And it seems like when he came to that realization, uh, that things kind of shifted in the Reagan administrations, and so happens was also starting to shift in the soviet union with gorbachev
1: yes yeah actually i that quote from the reagan diaries is i believe from june 1984 Mm. and it's after kind of the dust had settled from the soviet war scare crisis of the fall of 83 and reagan was convinced really the guy that convinced him was director of central intelligence, Bill Casey, mm. that this was really a serious thing. Um, we, we didn't realize it in the moment, but man, we came really close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had a deep impact on Reagan. Um, Casey wrote up a, a report. He had, uh, there, there was, I won't get into this inside baseball, but there was kind of a fight within CIA over what to tell the president. Anyway, but ultimately, Casey prevailed as director, and he got this message to Reagan that this really was serious. Hmm. and it, it was it was one of the things that turned his head around. And he he was uh, in 84. Um, Konstantin Chernyenko was still he replaced on drop off. He was a, another transitional figure. Hmm. Uh, but it, Reagan said something to the effect, you know, I, I I'd like to have serious negotiations with soviet leadership but they keep dying on me <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he was he was not wrong about that with brezhnev and Andropov and then chernyanko and it was the next year when gorbachev came to power that he finally had an interlocutor to de- mm-hmm. that he could actually have serious dialogue with
0: right yeah it's interesting that happened imagine somebody else coming in or it's uh i don't know so many things happened during that time frame during that period in in the 80s that's uh um I don't know without some of those people and once again back to the individual without with, yes. with different individuals in place we could have an entirely different different outcome and, um, and if i if i may know. just a footnote to that i i think
1: reagan doesn't get enough credit for that change of heart and mm. mind that he had going into the 84 election and then his second term that he became determined we need to do something about this threat of nuclear war and it was it, it's unusual for a, a statesman a senior leader like that to do kind of a 180 on mm-hmm. uh, policy but that's what he did and uh and we were better off for it
0: no it's it it's interesting um because if you stay on that same path i mean maybe next time we don't get lucky Maybe there's some different right. people in places to make some some different uh, assessments or judgments. Um, maybe some other events happen leading up to another event, let's say in 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. Uh, and we right. have a, a different set of events that puts people on a different edge, their different personalities in place, and that results in an exchange. And, uh, you know, in this country, we're not hearing about these things. We're not hearing about 1983 until all these years later. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it, but it goes, but there are lessons there, which is why I think this is so important to go back in these pages for, you know, not so much for us, but for our kids and our grandkids, um, their grandkids, um, to, to to learn these lessons and not not forget this, which is why I think this is such, a, such an important read right here. But this first paragraph is great too, this first paragraph that you write here, and it says, in the fall of 1983, the world stood at the brink of nuclear annihilation and almost no one knew it. Everyone learns in school that the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was the single greatest flashpoint of the Cold War, and it was, until the events of the fall of 1983. It is my firm view that 1983 was the most dangerous year in human history. That's pretty powerful. It's great writing, and it's very, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Most people need to go back, they need to read this, uh, this book and then I love the timeline, factual timeline. I love how you do that uh, because it is a, a work of fiction uh, more or less. Um, so there's all, so I love that how you have the timeline uh, and, and you learn a lot from this from this timeline. just going into this. If people are just to get this book and go here, uh, it'll make them want to go to the front and read the, the whole thing. But I really love how you uh, lay it all out here with the people, with the personalities, with the events. Uh, in a way that is so, so readable, and then the fictional bios, of course, (laughs) (laughs) which is fascinating. And then I turn it over, and I'm seeing some amazing people here uh, endorse this thing. Um, uh, Admiral Stravitas, uh, he came on the podcast. He was uh, a really fascinating guy to talk to. You have General Brown on here, Admiral Keating on here, Um, and then you have somebody from the Doobie Brothers on here. (laughs) (laughs) skunk baxter what's going on there
1: well skunk and i've been friends for over 30 years and uh and i i I had to have a quote from skunk baxter (laughs) and yeah he's a great friend and and of course he has had a second career he's still a musician um but he's had a second career as a consultant in defense and intelligence and
0: how did that come about because i didn't I read that here. I'm like, what?
1: Yeah. Um, well, he he always had. An, he, he's he's kind of a. I, I I don't think he'll yell at me for saying this. He's kind of a tech geek, and uh, he has always had an interest in and a great knowledge of electronics and mm. stuff. Anyway, he got interested in SDI, in the Strategic okay. Defense Initiative, back in the late '80s and he started doing investigation and, and on his own research and so forth. Anyway, he ends up writing a paper about different elements, technical elements of the strategic defense initiative challenge. And that paper gets to a congressman in Southern California. Next thing skunks on on the Hill testifying. And, uh, uh, and that, that brought him to the notice of people, both in DOD and in the Intel community, and he ended up um, getting clearances and that uh, and he's been, he's worked with me and every company I've been in, I've always had Skunk as a consultant. And uh, and he's just, a, he's a great friend. And we've had a, a long and, and, and really terrific
0: friendship. So anyway, that's, that skunk. I love it. I love it. I didn't know that. I saw that on here. I'm like, Oh my goodness. That's fantastic. I love it. Uh, that's probably great to have an outside. That's why I think a lot of times that we don't do also, and why the importance of red selling something. Um, and I learned this actually in Hollywood too, with the terminal list doing the, the TV series, cause you're writing a script in a perfect condition, the air conditioned room when you're writing it, you think you have all these wonderful ideas. And then you get it out there and you're on the actual location you're looking around and you're like, oh, this doesn't work at all. And now this script that I have here for episode four doesn't even work because of what the actors brought to episodes one, two and three in real time. But it's similar in planning, planning a mission. Uh, You get there There and you're planning this thing and you think you have the greatest mission of all time. And then you have somebody red sell it, meaning coming in from the outside who wasn't intimately involved uh, and personally uh, invested in this uh, plan. And they come in and they point out something like, oh, hey, what if, uh, you know, what if one helicopter doesn't work that day? Or what if it shuts down and or whatever it is, they point something out that might be glaringly obvious, to somebody walking by from the outside so that's the it's an important to do that and it seems like he might be that guy kind of the outsider coming in and uh being able to you do that it. uh yeah and it's so He's, valuable he, to have that person
1: he, and he thinks out of the box too yeah. he doesn't he doesn't have the same box as we do yeah. right it's it's terrific yeah he does a great job and and congratulations on the Terminalist, oh, by the way you. Thank, thank you really enjoyed that i oh, appreciate the, that yeah,
0: appreciate that. Well, are there uh, are there hints? Somebody might have told me that there's a hint of this uh, maybe being looked at for some sort of a series. Is that uh, is that true?
1: Yes, and actually, I can. I'm actually at liberty to talk a little bit more about it now. Um, we've been optioned by Legendary wow. Television, and uh, which is I'm, sh- I'm That's sure great. you know. Congratulations, picture, production houses. Yeah, thank you. And the options for either a motion picture or A television series Um, not sure what they're what they're going to do or if they're going to do anything at all but I hope they do
0: yeah no you never know but it's exciting it's exciting to have somebody interested and uh, you know we start in that process that's fantastic congratulations and there's more right there's more in this in this series and and what's the timeline on those
1: yes Um, well I the next book is called the righteous arrows and it begins just a few months after the able archers ends. Um, it still it has our two heroes, uh, Kevin Katani and Ivan Levchenko, as do all the books. And it's the same kind of format, first-person narration. Um, the bulk of the second book, though, is concerns the Soviet war in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which we were just chatting a little bit about. And in, um, in book two, The Righteous Arrows, Levchenko is... Named the commander of the GRU and Spetsnaz forces in Afghanistan, and so that's the role he has um, in the Afghan War. Katani is recruited by his old boss, the red-haired major, mm-hmm. who is at the very beginning of the archers, and he's the major character in the, the Righteous Arrows, and um, he's recruited to 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 join him in the special activities division at the agency, and he's involved in Operation Cyclone, which is supplying the Mujahideen Mm -hmm. with weapons, including Stinger uh, surface-to-air missiles. Um, Nice,
0: looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, so that's Katani's gig. And the first part of the book is in in East Germany, actually. It's another mission that's related to the Able Archers that kind of bridges Mm -hmm. the two books, but the rest of the book is Concerning the Soviet war in Afghanistan, All right. um, and the status of that is, uh, my agent, my literary agent, has the manuscript, and we're um, we're going to see where that goes. He's, uh, you know, the the Abel Archers was published by a small publisher. We're we're hoping for they've been terrific, no complaints about them, but we're we're hoping maybe we can get with a larger publisher for book two, and and maybe with the legendary news that might help so yeah it
0: won't hurt certainly won't hurt yeah we'll see so, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic and, and I'm, I'm planning um
1: a total of seven books in this series with the same guys and i'm working on book five right now and
0: i've oh you're ahead of the game my goodness yeah, amazing
1: i'm ahead of the game
0: but I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna edit this out i hope my publisher doesn't uh, listen to this part so far ahead. yes
1: edit it please feel free to edit it um, <laughs> but uh but four of the books, including the Able Archers, four have been through the review process at at OSD. And and I, I did I talked to my um uh age, my uh um case officer earlier this summer and asked if do I really need to continue sending you these manuscripts? And he said, Oh yes, you do, sir. You still have active <laughs> you have active clearances. You need to
0: uh, yes. interesting. How long how long do they take with each book?
1: it has varied but uh Mm -hmm. the last two books have taken the first book number three took 12 months Mm -hmm. and book four took 11 months Uh, it's really slowed down as covid had Uh its impact on people working and and so forth so i i have nothing but positive things to say about the guys in the Pentagon, I mean, they've been terrific to work with. It's just slow. They're just inundated. It's, it's, it's not anything on their part. It's just the workload is kind of overwhelming for them.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And before I let you go, um, the, uh, KGB, GRU relationship, what's, uh, what was that like looking, looking back on the, on that relationship in the, in the eighties or during the cold war? Um, was it adversarial at times or how did that, did they compete? A different missions somehow, but sometimes there's overlap. And what was that relationship yeah. like between those two agencies? Yeah.
1: Well, yes, there was definitely a rivalry between them and the KGB it tended to view the GRU guys as Neanderthals, you know, <laughs> knuckle draggers. Right. Um, and the GRU has the Spetsnaz component mm-hmm. too, which is different than the way we organize in the States. But so that may lend itself to more of that that sense on the part of the KGB that these guys are, you know, uh, kind of wild men, right. But uh, uh, yeah, there's rivalry, the, uh, they, they're, well Operation Ryan actually is an example of where there was overlap in the mission set where they were both tasked with going out and doing the same thing essentially. and um, so they might be pulsing the same, resources mm-hmm. sources and on uh so yeah there's there's definitely a rivalry but kgb always kind of look down their nose yeah and hear you um i think it's today it's somewhat different in because the russian uh the russian structure is different the kgb was broken up into three different pieces uh and the svr is the foreign intelligence component now And the GRU, if anything, under Putin, has become stronger and um, more potent. Mm. Um, And uh, I I think there is some continued rivalry between them and the SVR and even the FSB, which is supposed to be the internal security service. Although the FSB has gotten a bloody nose over its intelligence on Ukraine, Mm. because The FSB has responsibility for the near abroad, which Mm. includes Ukraine, not the SVR. And um, uh, if just a a quick thing, you could edit this out, but uh, there was a um, that famous conference that that Putin held just two or three days before the invasion began, where he had his entire national security council in a nationally televised meeting Mm -hmm. in the kremlin where um putin was seated like 50 feet away from these guys and they're all they're all seated like school children in front of him and it was the director of the svr when each of them was asked to come up and kind of tell putin why it was such a good idea to do what he wanted to do in ukraine Mm that was the game plan for the meeting and the SVR guy gets up and doesn't follow the game plan huh. and he saying, well, you know we, there's still time for us to let negotiations work. there's still time we, we don't need the special military operation to kick off right away. we don't blow up. and Putin just leveled him hmm. and and the he was the SVR guys, um, testimonial was completely in contrast with the FSB guy's testimonial and with the GRU testimonial, which was, you know, we've got to go in there and stamp out these Ukrainian Nazis and mm. all this kind of thing. So there's still rivalry. I mean, it, it within the, and and actually, I think he, the SVR guy in this case, it wasn't just rivalry. I think he was taking a principled stand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's still in that job, hey. but he's he's an old crony of all these guys are old cronies of Putin's from the KGB. Yeah. And 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 he has this St. Petersburg mafia mm-hmm. that he surrounds himself with. Um, too. So anyway, yes. Yeah, no it, always, always rivalries.
0: always. Yep. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really who he surrounds himself with and his background, something we should look at a little more when we're uh making assessments and and uh, as far as policies at all, all different, different levels. Um, but now what are you doing today? So I know you're on the board at, uh, at CAE, which is how we got uh, connected. Um, yes. And, uh, and that all this experience, I mean, that's a wealth of knowledge over um, a, a great many eras really in, uh, a, in our country's history vis-a-vis foreign policies and adversaries and technologies. Um, what are some of those things that you're bringing now to, because uh, I you know CAE, one of the things that they do is focus on training uh, Soldiers, Sailors, airmen, and Marines for the modern, modern battlefield. Um, and, uh, and what are you, what are you seeing as, as, uh, something that is, uh, is a vital importance or something that needs to, to shift or that we need to do better or that, uh, that you're doing through your work with, uh, with CAA to help prepare our, uh, service members for the future?
1: Well, th- yeah, thank you. I, well, CAA is a great company. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's a Canadian based Company with a large presence in the United States, and it does principally does aviation training, both civil and military. It also has a medical component for training medical professionals. Um, but clearly, the the military mission is is vital, uh, both individual weapon systems training, which CAE does so well, and and something else that I'm very interested in, which is more the joint fight. Mm. training for the joint fight and for multi-domain fight and and bringing uh more of a joint all domain command and control to coin a phrase um orientation to how we train uh i i would like to see that i'd also like i think the intelligence community would benefit a great deal from a lot of what cae does as well and we're beginning to uh, have some success now with certain agencies within the Intel community. So I'm very bullish on what the company does uh, and how well it does it. Uh, Happy to be associated with them. And um, I'm also on the board of a small company in uh, Austin, Texas, which is called Fusion Constructive, which is building kind of metaverse environments and Mm -hmm. with an eye principally on the defense market right now uh and has gotten some good traction with uh, with the space force and um with uh, with the other service with the army and air force so principally those three services um and that's a lot of fun and then um i don't really do much consulting um i i limit my consulting to working for the bain company which is you may know one of the big consulting firms in the world. And I, I consult with their aerospace and defense practice and really enjoy working with them. They're terrific um, and a uh, great group of people. So that's, I think, you know, at this point in my life, what I work for, look for is I'm not looking to work full time. Obviously, I'm, I'm interested in, in writing and uh, and focusing time and attention on that. But, you know, look for great people to work with and great products to be associated with and and great problems to work on that are meaningful mm-hmm. to uh, to our defense community and intel community uh, that's that's been my life really and that's uh, uh what i'm still interested in i hope to make a contribution to. and with these books I'm with their historical fiction uh as you mentioned at the outset and Um, I'm hoping that they serve uh, several purposes. One, to entertain people, but also to, without being pedantic about it, to educate people also about some of the more important things in our recent history that we may not be as well aware of as we should be. Um, and, And also the importance of having really good people in our military and in our intel community, and 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 one of the things, and I'm sure your books do this, but one of the things that has been interesting to me about the Able Archers is that there are. Uh, I'm getting reports about teenage kids reading it and thinking, "Oh, well, I I'd like to be in the intelligence community, or I maybe i never really considered the military before, but this is pretty cool what this Kevin Catani guy does, and, you yeah. know." I, and that's sort of an unexpected bonus. I I hadn't really anticipated that kind of reaction. Um, so that's, that's gratifying too. And, and so maybe there's like, I was a, a young kid growing up in the hinterlands and and reading books and inspired me to, to reach for something different. Uh, So maybe, maybe uh, again, I'm sure your books do this to inspire kids and and maybe mine will as well, that would be gratifying.
0: Yeah, no, it's something I didn't really think too much about him, I did think briefly about it just because of me growing up in the 80s and my experience of watching movies like Rambo and Commando, First Blood, like Predator, all these things, and reading books by David Morrell from First Blood, to his novelizations of the second and third films, and then finding his other books, Brotherhood of the Rose, Fraternity of the Stone, League of Night and Fog, um, all these really, books that uh you know were part of popular culture at the time but have had a had a significant impact on my life uh, personally and and professionally Um, so i did think about it briefly in those terms but i was just focused on making the best product i possibly could and then at this last book tour in particular because now if you read my first novel in 2018 or 2019 at age 18 or 19 or 20 or even 17 you can be have served now multiple years in the military um and people are yes. starting to come up telling me yeah. that they joined the military because they read my book and it's yeah of, you don't know what to kind of how to take that um but yeah uh, i guess it shouldn't be unexpected but uh but at the same time it's just hard to you know uh, you know just don't know what to what to really really say um but it's it right. yeah it's it's a, the power of popular culture. Uh, you know, hopefully it's a, it's a positive. And, and speaking of that, speaking of positives and possibly negatives with this, this time that you had, uh, in, in school and in, uh, in the air force and these, all these touch points with the intelligence community in and out of industry, um, what, do, what keeps you up at night? What worries you the most? And, um, and then what gives you hope? Well,
1: I, I think what gives me i'll start with what gives me hope i uh, the united states always gives me hope um you know it 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 is i still think the greatest country on earth and uh we have a great deal to offer the world and our uh and i it, it's not just our military prowess or what have you? It's it's everything that makes the United States what it is. Um, it gives me it always gives me hope, and and I see it in industry. I see it with these startups, like the one in Austin I'm involved in, and you know people have a vision and they can create the means to realize that vision in the United States. And it's it's harder to do in other countries. You can still do that here. And I think that that's the promise of America. And I've seen it manifested many, many times in my industrial career, working with small companies, even when I was working with big companies, nurturing them and, and so on. Um, so that gives me hope. I it, What keeps me up at night, um, I, I do worry about the situation in Ukraine and uh, the West not really having a clear vision of what the outcome ought to be. And in that sense, it reminds me of um, our engagement in Afghanistan um, and Vietnam, for that matter. And that really worries me that we don't have a clear set of objectives because our adversary does. The Russians do. The Russians know what they want out of this. And, um, and and as a corollary to that, I, I worry about the potential for escalation and unintended escalation, which is another theme really of the Able Archers that we narrowly avoided unintended escalation on several occasions. And I, I worry about that in the context of the Ukraine war. Um, for the longer term, China is the concern that's, yeah, I think most people agree with that. And, and, uh, we, we need to be, we need to be much more strategic in our outlook around how we are going to deal with China and recent events in Taiwan give me concern. Um, we still don't have a clear policy vis-a-vis Taiwan mm-hmm. and are we really moving from a policy of strategic ambiguity to one of certain defense of Taiwan? I mean, if that's the case, then that has major, major implications to it uh, and should not be just, you know, stated cavalierly in a press conference. And so that worries me. The, The worry of our lack of strategic vision of, What's the framework that the United States wants to go, wants to create for the future? Mm-hmm. We've had past generations that had that kind of strategic framework. Certainly the the post-World War II generation did. I don't see that today. And that, that worries me. Uh, and then you have these flashpoints that we've already mentioned that uh, are of immediate concern in the case of Ukraine and of midterm concern in the case of Taiwan.
0: Do you think that Taiwan is just something that we thought would eventually work itself out over time? It seems like our policy has been one of, it'll work itself out eventually, uh, and it hasn't. And that's now a policy, I forget exactly when we uh, conceptualized it as such, but certainly by the early 80s, maybe in late 70s, I forget. But um, uh, do we think it was just going to kind of work itself out on its own and we're just going to stand by because it didn't seem like an actual policy yeah it it, the the stated
1: policy is one of strategic ambiguity yeah like we're gonna hope it seems like a policy of hope yeah and i i think a wake-up call i think for washington has been the crackdown in hong kong Mm -hmm. over the last few years that oh my god that's what they're going to do to taiwan Mm -hmm. and And I I think there was this sense that as long as Hong Kong was going along relatively okay Mm -hmm. and Hong Kong was allowed the freedoms that it, by the way, was guaranteed by the nineteen ninety-nine agreement, that things would be okay. And and that I think I, I guess, suppose the good news there is that I think that bubble has burst in Washington. I don't think people believe that any longer. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we haven't really established a clear strategic vision for what we want to see other than we want we want Taiwan to remain independent. And and that's in direct contradiction with what Beijing wants.
0: Once again, it'll be very important to put ourselves in our enemy's shoes uh, on this and see things through the Chinese lens as we uh, as we make decisions going forward. And hopefully we can avoid some of these uh, these situations from turning into real flashpoints and real disasters in the in the years ahead. Right. Yeah, I I think it's fair to say that a
1: war over Taiwan would be an intern, a global catastrophe. i I really do it would make what's happening in ukraine look like kindergarten recess by comparison and it's and ukraine's awful i don't say that to Mm -hmm. in any way diminish what's going on there and uh uh but i and and just look at the ancillary effects the war in ukraine has had on fuel supplies food supplies etc with the economic impact it's had globally on inflation and and it's a relatively small conflict in a relatively constrained area and that that's not what taiwan would be taiwan would be a major major war
0: interesting well hope our senior level policy officials elected representatives uh appointed bureaucrats anybody in these chains that have grown exponentially over the years uh take that into consideration um, going forward and hopefully they read this book. I hope everybody else does too. And I'm looking forward to the, the next one in the series and, and all the rest. And, uh, thank you for writing this, but more so thank you for your service to the nation and, uh, for keeping this history alive because, uh, you know, the answers are out there and they're in the pages of history many times. And oftentimes we overlook those. So, uh, so thank you so much for everything. Well, thank you. And thank
1: you for the opportunity uh, to be with you today. I really appreciate it. And, uh, the able archers is, is available at Amazon and barnes and And you can learn more at my website, which is www.brianjmora.com. And, uh, so, and fingers crossed that we might see it on the screen someday.
0: Yes. I hope so. I look forward to it and, uh, and love the cover, by the way, they did a great job with the cover. I'm looking forward to seeing the, the next cover as well. And, uh, Hopefully people will uh, will pick this up and, and give it a read and then uh, be as excited as I am for the next one. So uh, thanks so much for everything. And hopefully we can meet up in person one of these days and uh, and, uh, and link up and discuss some of these over a drink. I look forward to it.
1: All right. Thanks again. I really right. appreciate
0: it. Take care. Thanks Always. for everything. Thank you to Navy Federal, presenting sponsor of the Danger Close podcast. I've been a member since 1996 since my first couple months in the military thank you guys for being on the journey with me navy federal credit union is helping their members save when they purchase new homes they have loan options and resources to make sure you get a great deal now navy federal will contribute one thousand dollars as a lender credit towards closing costs on your new home members also save on their monthly payments since there is no requirement private mortgage insurance. Plus, Navy Federal offers low rates and fees so you can save even more. Navy Federal mortgage experts can help you choose the best option for you, making the home loan process a smooth experience. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission insured by NCUA equal housing lender qualifying members with purchase mortgage applications after 91622 may receive up to $1000 towards actual closing costs applied at closing with no cash back and subject to loan program maximum contribution limits terms subject to change ask your loan officer for details navy federal today's gear segment is sponsored by zero Trot Zero Foxtrot provides unique products that reflect the old school vintage military lifestyle. I've actually been following these guys for a while. Love what they're doing. Have a bunch of other shirts and coffee mugs downstairs from uh, uh, from the last few years. Just love it when guys get out and absolutely crush it. Zero Foxtrot is veteran founded and is a proud supporter of our nation's defenders, veterans, and first responders. Actually wearing this shirt. Look at that. Canoe Club USA. What does that mean? Think you're going to have to look it up in your web browser, the Google machine. Canoe Club USA, awesome shirts out there. They have limited edition ones that drop every now and again that are super cool. So definitely go to zerofoxtrot.com. And right now we have an exclusive code for listeners of Danger Close. Use code JC at checkout for twenty percent off your order. Very cool. Remember, you can gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC at checkout. For 20% off your order, just go to zerofoxtrot.com slash JC and remember to use code JC for 20% off at checkout or just click the link in the description. Once again, that offer code is JC. Gear up with zerofoxtrot and use code JC for 20% off. Awesome. Definitely do that and check out all they have going on follow them on the social channels. They have some great things out there. They do some history posts every now and again that are really cool and very well thought out. Definitely check out zerofoxtrot.com for all the stuff. They have Zippo lighters in there. They have these mugs right here. What does that say? Drink coffee, stack bodies, stay zero. Love this. And then this one right here, this is cool. This might be a limited edition one, I'm not sure. Um, But for St. Patrick's Day, lack fear, not beer. Look at that. Boom. Love it. Awesome. So that's what they look like right there. Zero Foxtrot. And you get a little of that action right there. That's a sticker. But uh, check out their t-shirts, mugs, right here, whiskey glasses. These are some of my favorites right there. Look at that. Oh yeah. Solid. So check them out for sure. Zerofoxtrot.com slash JC for 20% off. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day, and if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffeecom slash close and use code Danger Close twenty. At checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Raffle Coffee, America's Coffee. Keep crushing. Welcome to the Gear Highlight portion of the Danger Close Podcast. And I want to start with this badass workbench. It is at badass-workbench.com. Check them out. If you see one in real life, you will understand why it is called the Badass Workbench, because that's exactly what it is. So thank you guys for that. This thing is awesome. I love it. And, uh, what shirt am I wearing today? Uh, protect right here. They do supplements. My buddy, Nick Norris, I was in the seal teams with is over there. Uh, love their stuff. They have a whole bunch of it rest. They have hydration. They have relaxation. They have clarity. They've got all sorts of, uh, resiliency, but they make a great clean product energy right there. I think I'm going to take a few of these after this um but yeah protect right there go check them out p-r-o-t-e-k-t.com nick thanks so much for everything and uh yeah i've been using this stuff for i guess maybe a year and a half now something along those lines so very cool what else wolf mountain leather matt hess look at this edc tray man awesome thank you so much for making this and sending it my way across tomahawks right there sincerely appreciated And that is Wolf Mountain Leather. I think WolfMountainLeather.com probably, but definitely on the IG at Wolf underscore Mountain underscore leather. So very cool. So thank you so much for that. And Outdoor Edge. So I do love the Outdoor Edge stuff because if you lose it, it's not the end of the world. Um, And uh, you can get in here at a good price point and it's not like, losing that extremely expensive thing that either you bought or someone else bought for you as a gift and now you're rummaging around in the middle of the night in the Alaskan backcountry uh, looking for it. Um, also, these are orange, so they're easy to find here. But uh, once again, it's not the end of the world if you misplace one of these, which is why I have so many. So uh, Outdoor Edge right there. Thank you guys so much. And these things are awesome too. I've used these for the last, geez, definitely over a decade. I've been using these Um, and uh, they're fantastic. So outdoor edge, thank you. And what else is going on right here? Send me. Uh, This is a documentary. It is out on Amazon Prime right now. It's about the fall of Kabul and Save Our Allies. You can go to check out Save Our Allies. You can go to sendmemovie.com for more information about what Save Our Allies does and about this documentary it's one hour it is about the fall of kabul about the evacuation and it is extremely emotional and powerful uh it's on amazon prime right now you can go find it there but uh definitely recommend checking it out so that uh we never forget what happened there thank you for tuning in to the danger close podcast an Ironclad original presented by navy federal credit union to find out more about brian mora go to his website Brian J. Mora. And that is M-O-R-R-A dot com. If you like this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. com is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And until the next time, take care out there. Be safe. Stay strong. Keep fighting.